0: Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties Too. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I love people who love cats and dogs, which is why I wrote the Dog Bible, Everything Your Dog Wants You to Know, and the Cat Bible, Everything Your Cat Expects You to Know. Every week, I bring you conversations with experts and authors who share our fascination with the animals in our world. This program originated and continues for the 13th year on 88.3 WLIW-FM, Long Island's only NPR station dog talk is a production of pet media inc which is solely responsible for its content there is a podcast library with more than 700 previous shows at radiopetlady.com along with my other pet talk shows like cat chat and good dogs this show is made possible in part with the support of Waruva, a family-owned pet food company that makes high protein recipes for cats and dogs The show is also brought to you with the generosity of Dr. Elsie's Precious Cat, a privately-owned litter and cat food company founded by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian. My guests today are Eric Turini in England, talking about his article, Do Dogs Go to Heaven? and a study that he did. Michael Delgado is going to be here giving advice about the kitty who was scared of the shiny shoes. And Melissa Shapiro will be here talking about her book, Piglet, the unexpected story of a deaf, blind, pink puppy and his family. I am very interested to talk to my next guest, Eric Turigny from Newcastle University in the UK, where he's a lecturer, which is the same in the US as an associate professor in the Department of History, Classics and Archaeology. Because I read an article in the Guardian, my absolutely favorite newspaper. Those of you who don't subscribe should, although it's free to everyone, just the best writing. And the title was, Do All Dogs Go to Heaven? And those of us listening to this show think, well, at least the good one should. But Eric is a researcher and a a literate person, and he's figured out how people have felt about this for a very long time. Eric, welcome to the show, and congratulations on this great article. It it looks at humans and animals from so many wonderful perspectives, gives us a sense that we're just a small part of the picture, a modern man, right?
1: Uh, Hi, Tracy. Thank you for having me. Um, Yeah, it's... There's just so many facets to our relationships with animals, and there's just so many ways to investigate that. And that's just you know one of the things I love doing with my research, really,
0: is to sort of look at facts and and make sense of them in a context that, in a sense, you create because what you looked at was pet cemeteries or the way that animals have been buried historically. I'm wondering um, in the in the UK, do you have the reference? When people's dog or cat dies, that they've gone over the rainbow bridge. That's a very American thing that we say. Do you say that in, in England? Mm,
1: it's becoming more and more popular now. I think that poem came out in the eighties, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. Um, and it's it's definitely becoming a common thing to hear. Um, in terms of the pet cemeteries that I looked at, you know, they are all predate. They mostly predated. Um, when that poem became famous. So there was no reference to it then, but it's definitely becoming more and more popular now, especially in online chats and and sort of um, commemoration websites, things like that.
0: And, and to make people feel better. I, in my ignorance, not not being a scholar as you are, didn't realize it came from a poem. I just thought it was one of those phrases hanging out in the ether, which of course there is no such thing. Everything <laughs> comes from what someone else has figured out. So, what you figured out, um, and I'm just going to say it briefly, and then I would love in, in your words for you to say it, was the way in which the burial of animals and the commemoration of them in a headstone or the equivalent seems to have instructed you in how they felt about those animals.
1: Yeah, so maybe I should give a bit of context. I'm, a, I'm an archaeologist, so I love to look at the material remains that people have left behind to reconstruct. Uh, past relationships uh, either with animals or with nature and it struck me that you know archaeologists for decades have been looking at human cemeteries for evidence of how people related to one another in the past right what people yes. write, choose to write down on their gravestones is, is a summary of what they felt about the deceased right um, and i thought well why don't we look at pet cemeteries to do the same thing and see how that relationship, that human animal relationship has changed through time.
0: And you didn't include another aspect. uh, I mean, unless I I didn't read it carefully enough of cultures in which animals and slaves and sometimes concubines and wives, maybe even children. And I don't know if this was only Egypt or elsewhere uh, buried Killed, I guess, and then buried. I hope they didn't bury them alive. With the the ruling person, they were sent to the afterlife with others who hadn't really naturally died yet. You didn't count that because those animals were sacrificed, as were slaves and 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 other more loved people, right?
1: Yeah, I focused on nineteenth um, century ce- cemeteries from the very recent past. So essentially, you know, our own uh, society, our own culture, and the, the immediate ancestor of that. Um, to go really far back in time, it'd be very difficult because, you know, if you don't have the, the gravestone, um, it's very difficult to reconstruct what that relationship is just based on the animal burial or where it's from. Right. Um, there, you could use evidence, but you can't quite um, get at the details in which I was able to get at in this study.
0: You mentioned that the oldest pet cemetery, I'm I'm just going to ask you to not move around stuff on your desk. You have a very marvelously sensitive mic, but we're picking that up and people are going to wonder if we're shuffling cards while talking. Um, So you talk about Hartsdale Cemetery in New York being the oldest pet cemetery. I was wondering about the Baiduwe cemetery that you didn't include. Of course, you're based in England and you, you, compared three specific cemeteries in Great Britain. But the one at Bidewee, which is interesting, the mo- the money was given, I want to say, by Evelyn Waugh or somebody like that, the 100 acres. And people and animals can be buried together uh, as cremated remains mm. in that cemetery. Were you aware of that?
1: I was not. I've never heard of the Bidewee. So I focused on the earliest pet cemetery in Britain. And I know that Hartsfield is the earliest one in um, the US, uh, but I've not heard. Do you know what, what date by the way? Uh, yes, began? it's in
0: West Hampton. It's right near the Hamptons where this show originates from. Oh, very cool. And to this day, there's still lots of room, which is unusual because a lot of cemeteries of humans and animals are all filled up. Mm. Um, the, I guess the one in Paris of pets is a, a pretty big deal and, and been closed forever, I guess. Mm. What did what did you what was the kind of conclusion that you drew about the relationship then and now? Yes,
1: yeah, so I looked at sort of the past one hundred years, and there was there were two or three conclusions. Really, the first is that the role of the pet in the person's life changes over time. The earliest gravestones you read, and they refer to uh, pets to friends, to companions. Um, And then as you, especially in the 19th century, early 20th century, and then as you pass forward to the mid-20th century, sort of just shortly after World War II, you start to see um, more reference to the pet as a family member. So, for example, you'll see the family surname appear after the pet's name. Yes, that was interesting.
0: um, That was so interesting. I had never thought of that. That was really a, a very good catch on your part. I mean, when you call him... Fido Jones that's very different than just saying we loved Fido, Fido. we miss him right
1: It's very revealing um it's little things like that which is so interesting so in those early 19th century pets uh, gravestones the pet name like Fido would be given in quotes as if right. you know it's it's not right. really a person's name but it's a name so I'll, I'll put it in quotes um and then those quotes disappear and then the sudden appearance of the 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 family surname, but those earlier gravestones that put the family surname would put them in brackets, um, as if, you know, it wasn't quite accepted yet that you would put the surname. So they they were sort of um, uh, justifying it with the brackets.
0: It was great. Um, I mean, there were sort of qualifiers all along. Yeah, Qualifying how much that animal was loved and included.
1: And then another great thing is, um, so this is common to human gravestones as well, when people were deceased, uh, someone, you know, a loved one left behind would erect the gravestone and would put their initials or their, their their own name at the bottom of the gravestone, right? So this this is erected to the memory of so-and-so by this person. And it wasn't any different for the pet um, gravestones. You would see the name of the person or their initials at the very bottom from right, the, right, right from the beginning. Um, but over time, that name—the name of the person erecting the stone—changed from uh, proper names or initials into pronouns like mummy or daddy yes. or brother, sister type thing.
0: Was- so again,
1: becoming part of the family.
0: And 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 by looking at it in that objective way, it tells us not only how that relation, those relationships evolved, but to me, it was, it was. Uh, very illustrative of the sort of marketing that is being done in America over the last only five years. And it's it's sent out as a press release. People now consider their dog or cat a family member. Yeah, but Mm -hmm. that hasn't, that's nothing new. That's how to sell, you know, dog shampoo or cat food. I, I find it kind of ludicrous because anyone who's, that's alive today or remembers their parents or grandparents knows that the animals were really loved and were really included. Even ones that lived outside were still named and cared about. Um, it's funny, isn't it? That somehow modern man wants to think, Oh, we're brand new. We're better. We're different. Yeah. They, we're we're so much more evolved and, and more de- we're more empathetic to another species, Definitely. but it's not the case, is it?
1: No. And that's, I think that's one of my other sort of main conclusions really is that, As much as things change, things also remain the same in terms of our relationship with these, these pets, you know, for some people or for many, the relationship that formed with their pet was just as strong, if not stronger than the relationship formed with other human beings. And when they lost that relationship, you know, after their pet died, um, they were overcome by very strong emotions and sometimes didn't know how to, to react, or felt maybe that they would be um, socially ostracized if, if people found out how upset they were about this loss, and maybe couldn't grieve you know, normally, or, or they felt some sort of guilt in grieving for an animal. Uh, this is back in sort of 19th, early 20th century. And you, I think you still get that today. And Definitely. you still see that in the tombstones. Um, today, you know, people do have, I don't know about in the US, but in the UK, there's a charity called the Blue Cross that um, has a, a support line for anybody uh, grieving with animals to, to call. Um, so today there are some support services, but people still struggle. And that was, that was, just as much the case in the 19th century as it is today. We,
0: we do have pet loss grief support groups. That's what they're called. Pet loss grief support. And the very first one that I was aware of, um, at least on the East Coast, and probably one of the very first, it's got to be about 20, 25 years old, was run out of the Animal Medical Center in New York City, which is the only nonprofit teaching veterinary hospital in the United States, in, in England all the all education is supposed to be nonprofit which is kind of different. and once uh, once a month on a Tuesday evening they had an actual gathering of a pet loss support group. but that didn't pr- prove to be enough and other groups um, sprang up but I had a wonderful film submitted to the dog Film festival last year by a young British filmmaker, and it was specifically on that topic, and it opened with her with her miniature horse, uh, archival footage of her as a little girl, and this little miniature horse in her, and it just gives you kind of goosebumps, because then it goes on to dogs and cats in the UK right now, and the issue of grief, and it shows the support groups, not just a hotline, that that Blue Cross, and I think it's also partly part of the, the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, And the people who came were all ages. I mean, there was a girl Mm -hmm. with tattoos and studs, and there was a grandmother, and there was a veterinarian who himself was struggling, a middle-aged veterinarian who's euthanized many, many pets. And he was still Mm -hmm. struggling with the loss of his aged cat, which had been some time ago. So, you know, we sort of think... Oh, the British are stiff upper lip, and they're more repressed in their emotions. These are obviously stereotypes. But in fact, as a country, you have recognized this and given people a safe place to describe these emotions and share them and not feel so alone. Probably before in the U.S., where everyone supposedly has their heart on the sleeve, Mm -hmm. but there's definitely a feeling of – not entitled to those feelings about death and the pet cemeteries i was very interested you had wonderful photos that go along with your research article you'll tell me whether or not i'm allowed to put a link to the article because it's it's brilliant mm-hmm. and wonderful but you show a picture surviving graves gravestones from hyde park pet cemetery and you had to get permission from the royal parks to include it so is it in hyde park in the middle of london
1: yeah, it's right in the middle of London. So this is the oldest pet cemetery in the country, um, one of the oldest or surviving ones in the world. It's, it started in 1881, and it's in central London in Hyde Park. It, uh, the story goes that a dog named Cherry uh, passed away, and his owner approached the groundskeeper at Hyde Park and asked, can she bury Cherry? The place where he loved most, which was right. um, the park, and he, the groundskeeper, actually had um, sort of a house on in the within the park himself itself, and um, he had his own private sort of back garden. And he said, "You know, I'll bury Cherry mm-hmm. in my back garden," and he did. And then, you know, essentially, what I think what happened is he figured out a trick and um, started a little business on the side.
0: <laughs> Good for and, him. <laughs>
1: started burying pets and within um the next two decades within 20 years that his tiny back garden became filled with over um is it four? i counted 474 gravestones um, and there are a few more i think that are buried or that have been lost so at least at least probably 500 gravestones almost a thousand pets have been buried there Which um, that- and it's Sorry, it's
0: extraordinary that you found this out, but didn't it also surprise you in what a state of, of disrepair or disregard or lack of maintenance? I mean, they're tilted over, they're falling over, it's all overgrown with grass. You'd think it would be something that would be a tourist attraction or something, an important historical monument in a sense. Didn't that surprise you, the neglect?
1: yeah i wouldn't say it's neglected i say they, they actually take care of it and they take care of it by not letting the public to see it so the problem oh. is that these stones are all so closely they were all put together to put um so closely next to one another right. that there's just no room for people to walk around okay. and now that they're all old and top, starting to topple over um it would just be if, if people were not in there would be a disaster they would, just, they would just... I guess all that's true. Them. I was
0: thinking a footpath yeah. around yeah. the perimeter or something. It just seems like you found it, and I, I would hope that the that the the Royal Parks would think, oh, well, if it's interesting to Dr. Turney, then surely it would be interesting to other people. I thought, you know, everyone well, always wants adventure travel. I thought, oh, Eric could lead a, a you know, a, I, not that I would ever wish this on you, but, you know, a tour of these various pet cemeteries and it would be it's so interesting yeah. it's a whole other way to look at human culture
1: Well, the royal parks does offer tours of the pet cemetery so um oh. you can book them um and so they're guided tours so you have to enter with the groundskeeper um and they do the tours they're not they're not that regular like once every couple of weeks i think it was but it might become more and more regular um especially after covid um no, the royal parks definitely knows the value of this, Good. this space Good. they, they they treat it, um, they treat it well. Well,
0: it's wonderful. Your article is, is terrific. Uh, We've run out of time, but I'm, if you would let me, I'll put a link to it. So other types who want to know how a scholar thinks about the world and about animals and relationships can, can see how you go about doing your work. It's great, Eric. And I hope you spend more time looking at, at our past through animals. It would be wonderful to have you back.
1: Cool. That'd be great. Thank you very much for having me.
0: This show is supported in part by Meet Me, a privately owned farm in Virginia that makes raw frozen foods and dehydrated treats for cats and dogs using animals raised on their own farm. This show is also brought to you by Merrick Pet Food, which began as a family run company in Texas 30 years ago, where they are still making natural pet food. I am back with Dr. Michael Delgado, the goddess of all things cat, cat behavior in particular. She is, I think of her as a translator for us with cats. And we, we usually say to each other ahead of time without too much planning, what should we talk about? And then we talk about that on Cat Chat or on Dog Talk and Kitties too. But I got a question brought to me so mind like a pretzel turns your mind into a pretzel i thought i would love to know what michael thinks of this so i'm going to surprise you dr michael with a with a situation that i came up with you know the sort of oh my grand advice was sort of like a doctor used to say take two aspirin and call me in the morning okay i mean anyone can say oh i know pheromone sprays that'll do it but you know really that does not explain this behavior so here okay. comes your brain twister, and and it may remind you of something similar that, um, that, that a client brought to you in the past. The woman okay. who runs a wonderful, um, very sustainable, humane, raw pet food company in Virginia, Meet Me, which is one of the sponsors of this show, and cats benefit so wonderfully from really high quality, raw, frozen food. So I've been very, um, w- we talk all the time, and she's- passionate about her cats and about nutrition and just about the human animal bond. She said, the strangest thing has happened. One of my cats is such a bold fellow. Nothing rattles this cat. He is chill. He is cool. All fine. People come and go, no problem. I came home wearing, very proudly wearing, she didn't say that, but I'm saying it's the way she said it, (laughs) a new pair of shoes, Italian shoes, very nice shoes sort of a blue silver very not too shiny patent leather and the cat froze in his tracks his eyes got wide as a cartoon and he looked like king kong had just walked in the door and she didn't realize at first it was the shoes until the cat became both fascinated like he couldn't stay away but he couldn't get too close And I said, well, maybe they had a weird smell. She said, I don't know. They were really high-quality shoes. I mean, they're made of leather. I said, well, (laughs) cats are really sensitive to smell. But, I mean, that wasn't the answer because the cat has not gotten over the shoes, Michael. He used to sleep every night with Laura in her bed. Since bringing the shoes home, he insists on having the, the closet door open where the shoes live, so to speak, and he guards them. And at night, he has to sleep near the shoes. He is obsessed, guarding, fascinated, slightly put off. Have you ever heard of a cat acting like that to an object?
2: Not off the top of my head, that specific reaction. Um, I personally had a cat who got really freaked out by some new slippers my mom bought me for a
0: christmas one year (laughs) that's um, similar so so what was that story like because i think other people must have experienced this and either never told us or not even paid too much attention to it so tell about the slippers were they were they ugly christmas slippers with like bunnies with their eyes
2: they were puffy cat slippers. They had cat heads on the feet. So, yeah, they were um, definitely strange. So, you know, a few things come to mind. You know, I definitely agree with you. Smell, mm, you know, I would not ignore that as a factor. Um, it doesn't necessarily explain the guarding and obsessive behavior, but it could. Um, well, I have a thought about that in a second. Okay. But, um, okay. Smell um, on the cat's level, right? So yep. um, our feet are at cat floor level. So it's going to be much more salient to them. They're going to see it. It's going to be prominent. Plus our feet are moving. (laughs) We're walking towards our cat. We're approaching our cat and there's, um, you know, for all our cat knows we are carrying something scary or could be another animal for, for all they know, um, towards them, right? We're just approaching our cat normally like, Whoa, 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 what's going on? Something new is attached to your body. So it could be a little scarier. Um, yeah, new smells certainly animal smells. So even if it's uh, fancy leather shoes, they still leather right. an animal product. So that could be um, much more um, prominent to our cats. Um, you know, I would I would question whether what what the cat is doing is more vigilant <laughs> than. Vigilance, the right garden. word.
0: Vigilance, a great yeah. word.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So that to me. Um, indicates that the cat is, is a little distressed. I guess I would yes. want to know what happens when she puts the shoes out in the hallway or in another room or in a box and just takes them away from the cat. Does the cat go back to normal? Is the cat looking for the shoes? Um, personally, I would probably get rid of the shoes.
0: <laughs> because the, because um, the cat has changed his behavior for a long period of time, not one day or two yeah. days. So yeah, vigilance a little... is a great word, Michael. Vigilance yeah. meaning... I'm both a hunter and prey, me the cat. Yes. And I have to be careful. This intruder, potentially Mm -hmm. dangerous intruder, is in the house. I cannot even sleep. I must be vigilant. because I need to keep an eye on what the shoes are doing. Yes. How incredible is that? Vigilant is such a great word because it means you have to be on guard like it's a war and somebody has to be the sentry looking for, you know, what's going to happen next. So, the only way she should wear these shoes, she could keep them in her car and wear, like, cat slippers. I'm kidding. She could wear your cat slippers out to the car and then put on those shoes, but they shouldn't come in the house.
2: Well, I would say, you know, the the alternative approach would be to to try to um, counter-condition her cat to being exposed to the shoes, which means um, gradually exposing the cat to the shoes paired with something positive. So, she could put the shoes in a box Bring the box in the house, and then several feet away, give her cat cat treats or play with him with a toy. Right, okay. so she's so the the shoes are safely in the box. He can't see them. He can definitely smell them. Um, this might also be a good case for pheromones um, as an additional part of the
0: right. Because that's what I said to her. Could yeah. do you have pheromone spray? Can you you know use yeah. feel away or comfort zone or whatever you've got.
2: Yeah, and so then, you know, you play with the cat a little bit closer to the box with the shoes and, you know, a little bit closer again. Give him the his favorite treats. Only when the shoes are present, then the shoe box goes back in the car. <laughs> right. Then maybe the next time you open the box and again several feet away, you're playing with the cat. You're giving him treats, gradually getting him closer over the process of several days. And then maybe the shoes come out of the box and they're on the floor. Same thing, repeat. And then you put the shoes on, but you don't walk around. And you Ah. do the same thing. You give the cat treats. Then you combine shoes with movement. Um, But always in between, you're taking the shoes away, Um, you're not pushing the cat to the point where they get stressed, and see if that helps. I mean, if that doesn't help, then it could be that these shoes, for whatever reason, like I said, it could just be the sudden appearance of the smell, the sight, and the movement. Just um, sent this cat over the edge. It could be the same day he looked out the window and saw a cat,
0: that's and a so good now one. he's that's already that's a good one. That's a good one. In a
2: state where mm-hmm. he's like, "Oh no, like what if that's the cat I saw outside?" You yes. know, again, to us it's very hard to understand because they're very clearly shoes, um, but we don't know what the cat's perception of this kind of olfactory plus movement plus visual experience is. So, um, so I would definitely try that before getting rid of the shoes because they sound like they were pretty fancy and expensive
0: <laughs> shoes. She loves them, it um, turns out. <laughs> of course. So, so cute. Um,
2: and like I said, sometimes we manage the situation and that would be wearing the shoes and leaving them outside the house. Um, which, you know, sometimes management is a good solution for everybody, especially, you know, if it doesn't cause her too much stress to put on the shoes outside and not wear them around the house. Um, then, you know, that's certainly an easy Answer, um, but I would also be looking at if he's continually vigilant, even if the shoes are not in his sight or in the house. That either um, you know, try increasing his enrichment, giving him other things to think about, take his mind off the vigilance of wow. the shoes. And or talk to the you know her veterinarian and make sure that he doesn't need some kind of either nutraceutical that might help reduce stress or medication. Um, you know, this is definitely an unusual case, but like I said, sometimes we see the um, cat was primed to be stressed right. by something else, like seeing a cat outside, and we just
0: don't always know. That's a really great point. And if, if in removing this um, this object completely. Mm -hmm. The cat remains in this vigilant state. That's not a good place for a cat to be. He's been tipped over into almost call it an altered state or a different personality. And that is the value of behaviorists and veterinary behaviorists and being able to give medication The cat doesn't stay on it for life. It just gets you over the hump, like someone going through a depression or going through anxiety attacks. You, you, You bring up the point, which is a really good one, that is easily forgotten of redirected emotion. We usually call it redirected aggression. Cats see another cat outside Mm -hmm. and it stimulates them to either mark in the house or in some case, if there's multiple cats, they turn on each other or can even turn on anybody, a dog Mm -hmm. or a person who's nearby to, to act out the instinct to drive away, to be territorial about that other cat. So talk a little bit about people who have cat perches near windows and cat trees, and we say, oh, this is great visual stimulation. How can we be aware and more sensitive to whether for some cats it's overload and it leaves them in this heightened state where they're overreactive to so many things and you think, what's up with this cat? But it was all about seeing that, that intruder outside.
2: Yeah, I mean, usually cats who are vigilant are going from window to window to window, so there's not a lot of signs of relaxation. If you have a perch in the window and your cat's sleeping on it all the time or, you know, watching some birds and chattering at them, that's much different than running from window to window to window. If you observe cats in your backyard all the time, that's when I would be concerned um, because even if your cat seems okay, you know, you don't know if they're going to kind of cross a threshold where they're just like, okay, this is too much. Now there's too many cats in the backyard. So you just want to be aware of what's going on in your backyard. I've had some clients um, use a webcam to record activity in their backyard overnight, and they've been very surprised by who is in their yard overnight. Um, You know, deer, possums, other cats. So, you know, just because you don't see it doesn't mean that there's not wildlife or other cat activity in your yard. So it's just good to be aware of what you're dealing with. Then you can kind of gauge like what is the likelihood that this is fun for my cat versus stressful. And like I said, if your cat's snoozing in the window and you know, lounging, that's much different than right. chasing basically, you know, going around the perimeter of the house trying to track another cat's being a behavior. guard
0: cat. Sort of sort of yeah, being and, on you know, guard.
2: Yeah, and you know, once, I'm not too concerned, you know, it's like once in a while if your cat sees another cat, and you know, again, it's just one cat, they're not in there all the time. I'm not super concerned, but certainly if they're kind of doing that vigilant behavior, even when there isn't a cat in the yard or that other cat is in your yard so often that your cat can't really relax in the window, then you need to think about covering windows with yes. like, privacy film yes, or moving the cat tree to a different window where maybe the cats don't go, um, making other parts of the house more inviting for your cat, nice, and also looking at methods of controlling that cat's presence in your yard.
0: Right. Some of those spray things are great. It's basically yeah, a hose that goes on, um, motion sensors yeah. that just squirt so, a... My
2: one note about that, because I have one, um, is if you will forget that it's on, and you will get blasted <laughs> probably more than that neighborhood cat. Um, so, yeah, I can't tell you how many times I've been hit by my hose um, oh, because I went into funny. my backyard and forgot the motion-activated sprinkler was on. That's
0: hilarious. Um, that is yeah. so funny. Um, I, I guess that what this boils down to on some level is the idea that when we say, well, this cat just suddenly out of the blue, that's always mm-hmm. the tip off. When you say suddenly yeah. out yeah. of the blue, did X, Y, or Z or stopped doing X, Y, or Z, it was never sudden and it wasn't out of the blue. It is part no. of a of an ongoing drama or scenario for them that we are simply blind to. Would you think that's a mm-hmm. fair comment? Absolutely. So your cat may react or respond to you or something or another kitty that's in the household or a child, what, whatever it may be, and you suddenly say, oh, my God, that cat just suddenly scratched or bit or, or, or ran away from. But there's something else that put them in this heightened mental condition. I think it's something we just don't realize how cats live in a kind of borderline stress. They have to be on guard. It's it's yes, part of being prey. They're very prey. sensitive. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And yeah. and that can make them e- either fearful or aggressive because, right? Those mm-hmm. are the two reactions you have to a threat.
3: Yeah,
2: and most aggression is based in fear and anxiety. So you know it's important to recognize that as well. It's um, your cat is responding to a threat in their environment. Just some cats respond in the fight mode, and some yes. respond in the flight mode.
0: Which would be dogs as well, by the way. Yes. Most aggression yeah. in dogs is fear based. They simply are trying to drive away this thing that frightens them or makes them feel unsafe. Just to, to wrap up, what happened with the cat slippers that your mom gave you? How, how did you overcome the cat's horror at seeing cats walking around on your feet?
2: Well, I will say this is before I knew I was a cat behaviorist. So oh, that's I definitely funny. Did, um, did not know. I think I just um, put them away and I think I gave them away. <laughs>
0: So you were already, in a way, a cat, you were a cat sensitive. You were like, these are really cute. I would have enjoyed them. I don't want to offend my mother. But that cat was not happy.
2: My mom would want what was best for my
3: cats as well.
0: Oh, is she, did you grow up? Is this part of what tilted you towards being a cat specialist? Did you grow up with all sorts of cats in your life?
2: Did not. I begged for a cat. Got one finally when I was 16. So, um, yeah, I was begging for cats my whole
0: life. Oh, oh my God. So you were deprived and you're making up for lost time by surrounding yourself with everything to do with cats. Well, I I guess Laura's going to have to give up these shoes. It seems pretty clear that these either live in the trunk of her car and she can be like the commuter that wears car shoes and then puts on the nice ones. I th- I think that trying to convince a cat that something that is dreadful to them isn't all that dreadful just isn't kind. You may as well just give it up and um and and you know live live to walk another day in a different pair of shoes.
2: Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just you have to really put the time and effort in. And for some people, it's easier to just keep the shoes in the trunk.
0: Right. And and the advice that you gave about desensitizing to those shoes is the exact same advice to anything that your cat has an adverse reaction to. I think that the number one word for a cat owner, a, a really loving one, is the word patience. You really need patience and do things slowly, right? Definitely definitely. Great. Well, thank you so much for all the things you do for kitties on the show and and, and out in the real world in San Diego. Thanks, Michael. Take care.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: This show is also brought to you by Evermore Pet Food, privately owned by two women who make cooked dog food frozen in pouches shipped directly to your home. The show is also supported by Earth Animal, holistic pet wellness products, privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein. I am so interested to talk to this doctor. Her name is Melissa Shapiro. She's a veterinarian, but she's something a great deal more than that. She is a rescuer par excellence of those animals that need special extra care. She has co-written a book now called Piglet, the Unexpected Story of a Deaf, Blind, Pink Puppy and His Family. And boy, it really is a tale. Melissa, congratulations on having gotten this all down in print and writing about Piglet and the rest of your family. I guess Piglet's kind of changed your life, which was a pretty busy life to begin with.
3: He has, that is for sure, and was definitely unexpected.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, I, I have to tell you that they're probably the other people that talk to you about this book or or write reviews or something. It's like, oh, that's so great. It's so wonderful. Look, they rescued this one pound <laughs> squiggling, pink, blind, deaf puppy. And I've always thought about people that want to take in the most vulnerable, the most damaged, challenged, whatever the politically correct word is, <laughs> that it, they're filling a need in their own life, a hollow in their life, a, a vacuum. And then I look at your life, Dr. Melissa Shapiro, and I think, could a person have a fuller life? Could a person be surrounded by more extraordinary humans and be more extraordinary herself? So the piglet story is great and you tell it really well. But I I have to know more about you because I think that anyone reading this book You start out explaining this little tiny pink piglet and and how he came from this, you know, inbreeding that's not a good thing to do with dachshunds, much less chihuahuas. But I look at your own childhood and the fact that from the time you were a little girl, you not only wanted to be a vet but you wanted to be the best vet that could ever be. And you studied and you never stopped studying and you pushed yourself. And then you get this great husband. And then you get these three extraordinary children, each of them a a musical virtuoso. And you drive an hour and a quarter each way to take them to their special lessons. And they go to great, you know, Juilliard and they go to schools and then you have this practice in West Fork, Connecticut, which happens to be where I grew up, and you do home visits, and you start with one dog and then another and then some damaged birds, and then you say, okay, max two dogs. That's the rule in our house. What happened here? Why are you this person that must take in six dogs with problems and then add piglet or five plus piglet? What is that about? I have to understand you.
3: You know, honestly, I am a very lucky person. And I and I, I worry about that coming across as too perfect in this book because that's not really the case. everything isn't so peachy and great but there was a lot of there have been so many nice things that have happened to me along the way that I, I do know and I greatly appreciate the opportunities that I've taken advantage of over all the years starting with you know my parents enabling me to care for animals have have pets, and move into being, you know, into rescue and and then in my education of course becoming a veterinarian. And so I have I have been very very lucky and I've worked hard, but to be able to become a vet was the only thing I wanted to do. Yes. I did a lot of other things along the way, but to be to to arrive at a veterinary degree and then be able to come out of school and still help animals but do it at a level that I had more control over, you know, I, I, my job is taking care of animals. I get paid, but I also can be generous. And one of the things that I, I feel very strongly about along the way in teaching our kids is, is community service and giving. And that is one of the themes in the book. So as a vet, I was able to work with rescue groups. I didn't have to charge them. And I, I got a lot of gratification out of doing it and, In addition, I'm really, really into uh, taking care of animals with special needs and disabilities. So again, you know, I, I had this very nice platform to work from as a vet because I could go ahead and take care of them. I didn't have to worry about vet bills like other people did.
0: That's a, so that's, in, a very, the end, that's a very funny way of looking at it. Oh, you didn't have to look at the vet bill because the vet who was doing the work that was already working like, a, I don't know, were you working like an 80-hour yeah. week or 174-hour nah, week? Nah. No, yeah, you <laughs> were but between parenting um, and your work. Well, you're between like, all oh, I'm, that, I'm yeah. really lucky because I didn't have to pay myself. No, there's something else that this is about. And community <laughs> service is great. We all love that. It's swell. But why these special needs animals a and b what happened to your dang rule every time i'm reading the book i'm like oh my god they're doing what they're getting on an airplane and flying to la to get a rescue tan terrier because your husband in a dream not really in a dream but he always wanted a tan He's, terrier yes. okay he did want a tan terrier yeah well you know really oh my god i, I never
3: wanted to be I, I also never wanted to be a vet who just had an unlimited amount of animals coming in. And, and honestly, we really did control that for a very long time. And then when our kids started going to college, I don't really know what happened, you know, could have been hormones, but I know, but we just started, I started getting more involved in rescue work with a friend of mine who has a rescue up here in Connecticut, bringing dogs up from Arkansas. And I just sort of got into the swing and we just found dogs that we wanted. And we adopted them. You call that you call that
0: getting in the swing? Omg! Yeah. I mean, you're taking so, in dogs with, yeah. you know, with multiple issues and demands. Even <laughs> any dog you take in, even if you buy one from a breeder, has got issues. And you're juggling all that. I think one of your kids. It may be your daughter, who I think her name is Ellie. But she's you know this yeah. musical virtuoso and and apparently puts you to shame in the, I will get this done. I am a determined, I am woman, hear me roar. Yeah, that's her. Um, And she said, how is it that each of us goes to college, and for each child that goes to college, you seem to get two dogs? Yeah, I I mean, we joke around about that. Obviously, we couldn't have this many
3: dogs when our kids were younger with the way that we were living. But, you know, it it, it was time to sort of, you know, they were leaving and we were going to do what we wanted. We we really did (laughs) not, and I really did not want to get this many dogs. And somehow... I don't know why it happened, and it was both of us. Warren wanted this one, I wanted that one, and we found a few dogs. We ended up with six dogs. One of them, Gina, who's a blind, uh, sorry, a double mural Aussie border-calling mix, has, is deaf in one ear, and she is disabled. She has some issues. But most of the other ones came with stuff, but no one's, no one's really profoundly disabled. So we, we had this very nice group, and we were all, you know, working together, and we're, we're good. are good. And we did not want any more dogs. Our kids were off going to college and suddenly we were just faced with Piglet. And when Piglet came, I said, I'm only going to um, take care of him. And when uh, they find him home, he's leaving. And that's another theme that we have is that sometimes you accept the unexpected Here he is. Well, I got to tell you that reading your
0: book, that was not exactly a spoiler alert. They're keeping this dog. Are you kidding me? They're so keeping this dog. She's sleeping with this dog and it's screaming (laughs) because it's terrified (laughs) and traumatized and all of its bits and parts are broken. And yeah, you were were completely hooked. I mean, the idea that you were going to give this dog up was not exactly like, will she, won't she? It's like, uh uh-oh. So here's a question that that really surprised me. When you first brought the little the little one, one pound, one pound, folks, think about it, you know, like one pound of ground turkey. Yeah. I mean, that's how we kind of relate to it. It's a very small bundle of living creature. You bring this screaming dog home because it's terrified and you don't know why, but that's what it does. It screams. It's blind. It's deaf. It's teensy-tinesy. And, you know, who, who knows? It doesn't know what's going on around it, obviously. Sensory overload or not enough, uh, not enough input. (laughs) And you put this little pink thing down on the floor with your six other dogs. I thought, wait a minute. What are you kidding me? You weren't thinking that your other dogs were going to even accidentally, much less on purpose, say, oh, my God, that looks like a drowned rat. We better deal with it. Really?
3: No, I I knew that no one was going to hurt him. The dogs are very gentle. They were used to, and we did have foster dogs, which we did give away and we did not keep. I, I tend to be very disciplined. This truly was not planned. And I really fought it, you know, before he was with us for a couple of months before I finally couldn't bear it anymore and, and had to say he's staying. But Putting him down with the other dogs, I was shocked at how how confident he was. Right. The other dogs were interested because they had not seen such a tiny little thing. But he got on the floor and he, yeah, you wouldn't have known he was deaf and blind other than he bumped into their legs.
0: <laughs> just, well, I think you, you have so, a lot of so trust. Amazing. There's a kind of St. Francis part of you that has a lot of trust that all animals are somehow good or grateful that they've got a nice mm. home and have been rescued and they welcome the next one. I mean, so many of us have a, our friend's dog visit and it doesn't even start well, much less end well, you know, growling, you know. Dis- oh, no, but th- this group I knew, I, okay. I actually knew
3: that these dogs would be OK because, of course, Susie was their leader and she was going to keep everybody um uh, friendly and happy, and that's the theme of this dog group. But, no, I don't recommend just bringing dogs in and throwing them in with the, with the others because most of the time it doesn't work out like it did in our house. And I and I particularly trusted these dogs, but I when I talk to people about adopting, fostering, and bringing new pets into the house, I don't recommend that. And I don't bring other animals into our house because our dogs don't like when new dogs come in. So it, Good, so they, they are normal dogs. And it worked. Okay, I'm glad they're normal dogs
0: because I've never had dogs that went, come on in, all's good. I mean, had one golden who was fine and one cocker spaniel who was like, oh, is there somebody new here? Where? But, you know, yeah. otherwise, yeah. there seems to be a territorial thing. Okay, so the really cool thing. I mean, besides the cool thing that, you know, you, you make a, a nice life for this dog and it doesn't seem to, to, to cause any blowback with the others and life goes on and you, you still can do all the other many things you do, is that you, you develop this piglet mindset and you, you saw him as this tool, not in a rude way, but a tool in which to reach school children and sort of see have them see in living color what disability was, what capacity was, you know, never give up. It'll all, it, things can work out. It, and and that seems to be the huge kind of gift that you have made of Piglet's uh, existence on earth and in your family. Would would you agree? Actually, as when when I agreed and decided that
3: we were going to adopt Piglet, I promised that he would have a productive, meaningful life. And I meant that. My initial thought was that he would be a great ambassador for rescued disabled pets, and that we could fundraise um, educate, advocate for for dogs and cats and other pets that are are disabled but then, as things turned out, we ended up with a with him as a unbelievable educational model for kids learning growth mindset. That was through collaboration with a teacher up in Massachusetts who happened to uh, comment on his Facebook page. So it all evolved into this very, very nice, very rewarding project for me, teaching children about growth mindset and then later acceptance and inclusion curriculum was added. So it's an online program that teachers can download and use in their classrooms. And then we enhance the program with virtual and hopefully soon in-person visits. So we're, so it, while that was completely unexpected, it is probably the most rewarding project I have ever done with any of my dogs and and in my whole life as a veterinarian.
0: Because you suddenly have become an educator. It's like it's added a completely other aspect or, or dynamic to what you do. I mean, you're reaching yeah. school kids and you talk in the book about the first time you went into a classroom and the kids were all primed for this because they had seen YouTube and Facebook and stuff about Piglet, this little tiny pink, adorable, but deaf and blind dog. And children seemed to really respond. It it brought out something in children that even to you as a mom, but with grown up, you know, highly evolved kids, but very grown up, I guess we don't really realize how much small children do themselves feel vulnerable. And they may not be handicapped or challenged, but life can feel like that to them. It's hard to be little and try to make sense of the world, don't you think?
3: Yeah, well, you know, the the trend now in, in education, even since my kids were young and in elementary school, is social emotional learning. so they. The growth mindset and, and you know, learning, growing as learners is trending. I That's see. That's what they're teaching the kids now. So, Piglet It happens to fit that model perfectly. And the kids, of course, identify and and a dog resonates with them because all kids love animals. It's a rare kid that doesn't want right. to be a dog or, or learn about a dog. And, and one of the things that I'm just continuously... I wouldn't say amazed, but but it it is very exciting to see how the kids relate to him, how interested they are, and how how he and not only teaches them about facing challenges with a positive attitude, but he also teaches them about acceptance and empathy. And the way that they they ask their questions about him shows me that he's doing the job. They they want to know and understand what it's like to be like him, right. how he actually manages to function. The way that he does, and I hope that they take that and integrate it into their lives as they they uh, relate and, and, um, you know, have friendships with peers who are also disabled to whatever degree.
0: I, I think it's so, I think he really yeah. is an extraordinary role model. I think what has gone from being your inability to say no, even though you claim you said no to a dog or two over time, <laughs> the fact that you couldn't say no to this little guy, that he was just like a almost a humanoid kind of baby in your arms, looked like one, acted like one, was so teeny and tiny and vulnerable. <laughs> he's become, you know, he's your fourth child in a way. Your other three kids have gone on to, to have brilliant lives and will continue to, but Him too. He's your youngest. And I think you can be really proud of who he's become and who you've helped him become. Thank you so much, Melissa Shapiro, for this wonderful book, Piglet, the Unexpected Story of a Deaf, Blind, Pink Puppy and His Family. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the guests as much as I did. Kiss your kitties and hug your pooches, and we will talk again next week. Bye for now.